Hello all and welcome to this very special edition of The Goddess Project. For those of you who are joining me for the first time, you're lucky because we are starting this very short series for this month of June for Pride Month called The Gay Gods of Greece. And so I'm going to do a few episodes, I don't know, maybe five or six, on some of the gay gods of Greece and some of their history and some of their mythology and also some of the ways in which they relate to popular culture and so or how they've been sort of passed down to popular culture and today we're going to start with the Amazons which I'm very very excited about as you can see this image here is of Wonder Woman and her new girlfriend which is super exciting um, and then we're going to move on later to Poseidon, to Artemis, to Apollo, to all your favorites. And I think it's poignant that we discuss the gender fluidity of the ancient world. While in the ancient world there was no such thing as homosexuality, gayness, queerness, these kinds of words, gender binaries, non-binary, these words were not part of the Greek vocabulary. However, I think for a very long time, classicists took for granted or presented, actually maybe presented is a better word because I think that they knew all along that there was a great deal of gender fluidity in the ancient world, much more so than they let on. And so I think early archeologists, early classicists um, on the whole, leaned towards the heteronormativity of mythology in the way that the patriarchs of Greece would have liked to present themselves. Of course, I'm not speaking for all of them because as we know, Aristotle famously said, we sleep with women for procreation and we sleep with men or have sex with men uh, for erotica and fun. And so, and Aristotle is a wildly respected patriarchal Greek writer. Um, and there were many others. And so the re I've been wanting to do this for some time. I thought that I would kind of sprinkle it throughout, but there has been a lot of tension and, well, let's put it bluntly, violence, never mind tension. Um, against queer people, and I'm I'm putting all of the LGBTQ two plus um, everyone who identifies as queer is under this umbrella for me, um, including me. And so I I feel like it's time to celebrate uh, queerness, and I know we are celebrating it's Pride Month, and that's wonderful. But I feel like it's time to also speak about it. Um, from a historical and mythological perspective. And so I just want to give you a heads up that a lot of what I'm saying to you today, first of all, I would like it to be fun in the sense of, um, I want us to talk freely about mythology and history. Sometimes I feel like we get very, very burdened down by the quotes of, again, patriarchal Greek writers. And so while we will be using, of course, ancient history material, um, and some primary source material, I'm not sure about today with the Amazons, because today we're just going to brag about how amazing they are. But um, I do think that we have to read between the lines. I guess that's where I'm getting to. We have to read between the lines. And there's a couple of things that I'd like to say before we begin. Number one, 
there is almost no mention of lesbian sex, what we would identify as lesbian sex today. So intimacy between women. And on the whole, I would say it's because most ancient scholars didn't acknowledge or care about women's intimate lives, unless they were having sex with a man and that somehow affected the citizenship of the offspring that was born. But women, like for example, Athenian women in their own homes were able to have relationships as they saw fit. No one, no one um, kept track of it and no one saw it as some type of digression. Um, now I'm generalizing, but I want you to imagine a world in which this is not an issue, nor is it noticed. Now, interestingly for men, uh, men having sex with men was a very complex status symbol or way to climb the pol political ladder. Or if we're talking about warriors and soldiers, lots, lots and sex, sex with men, uh, men with men. And so while Greeks did not identify as gay, you know, in any way that was not in their terminology for men, it's a little bit more complicated because they, this was a dominant and submissive sort of relationship. And, uh, sometimes, especially if it was a relationship of power or a relationship where the submissive would inherit wealth or inherit property or whatever. And so we do have more stories of men having sex with men than women having sex with men. In fact, we have very little um, stories, if any, of women having sex with women. But there is this sort of male suspicion that what are these women doing? So, for example, in the case of maenads, as you saw in the last episode that I did, you know, the suspicion of men, what are these wild women doing in the woods? And today, in the case of Amazons, which has always been fascinating to me, um, and Amazon women have always been fascinating, and they were thought to be a myth for a long time. And by myth, I mean a story. Uh, and now here I go using the word myth um, in the way that is my pet peeve. They were thought to be fiction. Let's use that word. They were thought to be a fiction in the imagination of the Greek world, of Greek men. But recently, archaeology and other material culture that has been discovered has shown us that actually warrior women were quite proliferous in the ancient world. Uh, women who rode horses, women who hunted, um, women groups, matriarchal groups or matrilineal groups were quite, quite popular. And so we're going to talk a little bit about those discoveries as well and so now what we're what we're coming to terms with is that the amazons were real women's groups and perhaps they really did fight the greeks and perhaps they really did establish some of the goddess culture that we are continue looking at today and you know perhaps there were match matriarchal matrilineal lines of women that really did not have any use for men other than procreation so without further ado, let's move forward. Um, this is one of my favorite depictions. It's from the Museum of Piraeus. It is my own pictures. And it's it really is depicting the typical Amazonian battle with the Greeks. And so what do we know about the Amazons? According to Plato, according to Herodotus, 
the Amazons were warrior women. We know that they rode horses. So as you can see, some of them here are depicted on horses. We know that they um, used a bow and arrow, usually while riding horses. So riding horses and archery seem to be a combination uh, or a skill that was often used to represent Amazon Amazonian women. Um, they also used spears and swords. They were they were said to be larger than regular women. I say this in quotation or Athenian women. And that would not have been surprising because they probably ate better because they fed themselves. Athenian women were on a very strict diet because they had to remain small and take up less space. And so they were said to be larger. And I don't know, some people argue, scholars argue, oh, they were probably six feet tall or six and a half feet tall. Okay. Um, if we're talking about some of the discoveries that we found in Western Russia, it is very possible that those Amazons or Amazonian type women that we found, those warriors could have been six feet tall. Um, we know that they were probably descendants of Scythians. Uh, and Scythians are from Eastern Europe, from the Balkans, from Western Russia, they are tribes that came down into the Mediterranean. And so it is very likely that because we found several graves or several tombs with warrior women, women wearing uh, warrior gear with spearheads near them, with um, a bow and arrow buried with them, that kind of stuff. It is very likely that these women were taller or larger than even the Athenians themselves. Uh, Mediterranean peoples tended to be about five, five and a half feet tall. So if women did come down, especially women, uh, and they were a larger size, you know, whether it was a little more meat on their bones and a little taller, they would have seemed large to Athenian warriors. And they would have seemed like a very good um, opponent in battle. And so we have numerous, numerous heroes, Hercules, Perseus, etc., who battle Amazon women as a way of proving their heroship. And it's fascinating to me that men had hmm, that men had the need to, hmm, what's the word I'm looking for? The need to overcome these massive women, these fantastic warriors, these warriors that they respected enough to fight and to brag about um, in order to prove their masculinity. I mean, it just seems so... Uh, hypocritical in a sense you know in order to prove that you're a man you must defeat this woman that is an equal to you or that is a threat to you so uh i find that super super fascinating the other thing that's really interesting about uh amazons is of course the clothing they wore now in these images you can see a variety of clothing one of the so there's this there's rumors that they used to cut off their left breast and that was because they used to have to hold the arrow right um next to their chest like so if you have I've ever done archery you know that when you reach um with the bow and arrow sometimes your breast gets in the way what i find really fast so this is a a story sort of mythology around that and 
it's unclear, to be honest, whether or not there is no evidence that because we have no bodies and, and what I mean is no skinned bodies uh, to really know whether or not Amazon women cut off their breast. One of the ways that they're often represented, though, is that they wear um, their short chitons. They wear short little dresses um, halfway off. Like so one of their breasts is bared. And that's, I think, more symbolism than accuracy. But who knows? Um, because if you think about it in battle, as a woman, you don't want to be revealing your boobs to everybody, um, not for modesty, but just practicality. But in Greek depictions, and you have probably seen often many depictions of Amazonian women, they always have like their dress kind of cuts across their chest and they are revealing one of their breasts. And so there is something sensual about warrior women. Um, there is something both frightening and sensual. And it's what is attractive to Greek men in telling stories about Amazonian women. So this is how they were represented. And they were always defeated, always defeated. Um, so in the story, they were always defeated. I would venture to say that in reality, had there been Amazon invasions or Amazon fights, which I believe that there are because there's enough writings about them but across the board of all of these patriarchal Greek writers that it 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 must have at least been some type of reality at some point. That's my academic opinion. Um, we have no evidence of actual battles between Greek men and Amazonian women. But one of the things that comes through is that they seem to have been many. There seems to have been many. And that there seem to have been a long history of them coming down into the Mediterranean to settle. Often they bring their own goddesses with them. Artemis is one of them, particularly in Ephesus. Um, Hera, they also bring with them. Sometimes Demeter is associated with some type of establishment somewhere by the Amazons. If you trace a goddess back far enough, you will see some kind of commentary that the Amazons brought with them a divinity, but particularly around Artemis because she's a hunter goddess and because she's using the bow and arrow, that seems to be very, very familiar to the Amazons. And so what makes Amazon women um, sexy, let's say, for the purpose of our um, episode today is the fact that they live only among women. And so while there is no actual statement that says Amazon women were lesbians. Of course, like I said, Greeks would not never have used that language. Um, and in fact, of course, lesbians comes from the island of Lesbos, where uh, Sappho is the poet there, which we're going to talk about in upcoming episodes. Um, what makes Amazonian women and warriors sexy and makes them great figures um, and idols for modern queer women is their powerful independence, their refusal to live among men, their procreation for continuation, and rather than, you know, the, the need to create citizens for a city, um, and their fierce athleticism. Yeah. So we don't know what 
Amazon women did amongst themselves. I mean, you know, and here I am taking a leap. You know, there's something sexy about women who are going into battle and preparing for battle and sharing a communal space and raising daughters and drinking and partying. And Hereditus tells us that they smoke a lot of pot. Uh, they smoke a lot of marijuana, uh, which is really interesting. And so that there's something very butch, very, very butch uh, about Amazon women. And it, it, we imply or we deduce that there is intimacy. And so they, while they are not outright telling us, or certainly telling Greek writers, yes, we like to bang on the regular. Um, Greek writers are fascinated by how is it possible that these women are satisfied just with other women? And how is it possible? You know, th that's the frightening part about Amazon women to Greek writers. That's the part that they question, you know, how is it possible for women to live without men? How is it possible for them to feel fulfilled? And so the implication there is that they fulfill themselves in whichever way they want. And so they become really fantastic queer heroes because they are unapologetic. Actually, that's one of my favorite words for them. They are unapologetic and they're vicious um, and they really have no need for male contribution other than you know, procreative contribution. And so there's lots of stories about Amazon women coming into towns, into Greek towns, and seducing men and taking their seed um, and then going off to birth, you know, children. There's also really great stories of uh, Amazon women having boys and then leaving the boys on the doorsteps of either their fathers or whoever, you know, to raise uh, and only keeping the girls. And so there's this great mythology. Now, in reality, and by that I mean what we found archaeologically speaking, the women warriors or the matri matriarchal, well, matriarchal communities that we've seen uh, and some of the burial sites are a mix of men and women. So while there are many matriarchal societies still alive today in the world, um, there's some in Asia, there's some in the Amazon, there's some on the African continent, um, there are still matriarchal communities where women lead, where women are yeah, the leaders of their community. Men are often part of these communities. What makes the Amazons really interesting are the fact that the Greeks argue that it's only women. So it's solely women. So it's matrilineal, which means inheritance passes through the mother's line and matriarchal, which means women lead the community. And according to the Greeks, it's only women. And so that makes the Amazons very, very unique. And so in the modern world, one of the greatest Amazons or example of an Amazon that we have is, of course, Wonder Woman. And is it an accident that her name is Diana? Hell no, it's not an accident that her name is Diana. Is it an accident that she lives uh, on an island of only warrior women? Hell no, that's not an accident either. So I don't know if you know the story about the uh, creator of Wonder Woman, but they were actually a thruple. So Marston, Bar mm, Marston Byrnes, I hope I'm saying that right, 
um, used Amazonian mythology as a creative response to what they thought was a growing social problem. So William Marston is a psychologist. Uh, his wife, Elizabeth Holloway Mars Marston, is um, also a psychologist, I think she was, and an artist. And Olive Barn, who is the third partner, Marston's first, third partner, uh, was also a psychologist and a researcher. So the three of them wanted to come up with a hero or a character that was pushing the boundaries of gender conformity. Okay, this is in the 1940s. And so particularly among young women, young women really weren't having any heroes. And so all the three together who are living in this thruple, thruple in the 1940s, yeah, what fun, um, came up with the superhero that was powered, both physically powered, but also emotionally powered. And so they decided to make her a woman, aka Diana Prince. And so she was really a an Amazonian hero, or at least that's how they describe her. And she's powerful, she's kind, and she has, and she's loving, right? And she also lives in this uh, Amazonian isle, where um, this island that where that man that is totally filled with, or only uh, filled with women. But what's really fascinating is how uh, Wonder Woman is born. So according to um, Marston Barnes. She is powered. She's a powered being. Uh, Wonder Woman is a powered being from the Amazon Isles. Yeah. She's sculpted from clay and given life to her by her mother, Queen Hippolyta, before taking on the mantle of the protector of the man's world. And uh, you could see this version in, in the 1942 um, Sensation Comics number one, uh, where you could see her creation. So now I'm not as... Um, well learned in the lore of Wonder Woman, so some of you might might know more about Wonder Woman than I do. Um, but I'm fascinated with the way that she is constructed and the way that she is born. It's very Genesis, so she's made out of clay. Her mother breathes life into her. It really is a statement of um, taking back the process of creation, but not necessarily through birthing of the body, but this sort of clay and life creation. And so Wonder Woman then, Diana, of course, no accident that she's named Diana after Artemis, but becomes the symbol of female warriorship. But what's really fascinating, if you've seen uh, some of the more recent uh, Wonder Woman film, you know, they're kind of here and there, a bit problematic here and there. I always have some, pro I used to have a lot more problems with her costume um, I used to have a lot more problem with sort of her falling in love with a dude all the time. Anyways, I used to have a lot of problems with the way that she was dep depicted in popular culture uh, because it seems that Hollywood really, really loves to take away the um, the fluidity of this character, uh, gender, physical, and even, you know, dress-wise because... Uh, the outfits that she wore for a long time were just very much part of the male gaze. Uh, but what's really fascinating in some of the last couple of films, and don't quote me on which one, but you could see very clearly when we're on the island, um, we the island of the Amazons, whose name is escaping me right now, but I'm sure some of you know it. Um, you can see very clearly that the relationship between the women 
is intimate. And I think what remains mysterious for men is that women's fluidity is much more, what's the word? I don't know what the word is. I don't know if it's normalized or it's more mysterious because women are naturally intimate with each other. Friends hold hands, they hug, they sleep in the same bed, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't make them lesbians by any means. But that fluidity, that ability to go from gentle touch to loving, to sharing emotion, to sharing touch, actually. Um, and you know, for women who like women, crossing that line is very smooth. And that in our society seems to be something that is um, more fluid for women. For men, because we have so much toxic masculinity, that line between friendship and lover is much more harsh. And again, I'm generalizing, but one of the one of the backlash that has happened against lesbians and against women who are intimate is this constant suspicion and consequence when men are looking at what are women doing together, for example, on an island? What are women doing together in a house? What are women doing together at a sleepover? What are women? There seems to be this um, suspicion, this constant suspicion, and that often leads to violence against women. Um, I mean, the witch burnings of Europe, for example, right? The the idea was that women were doing something, you know, at night in the woods or in their houses together, something that was, you know, in, inappropriate or devilish or whatever. And so it's both beautiful, but also something I think that women have protected for a long time and have hidden for a long time, their relationships, especially their intimate relationships with their friends. Um, because I think the male gaze is burrowing all the time, is questioning all the time. There's sort of an insecurity about it. Um, and so I think the island of the Amazons and the island of women is a safe space. And I think the Amazons themselves created safe communities for women. I don't think they thought of it, of course, like I said, back then in that way, because that wasn't really in the in the vernacular at the time. But there is this idea that a constant idea, unfortunately, actually, in patriarchy, that we must find safe spaces and um, that those safe spaces require that there are no men. Um, and so while that's really terrible for men who support women and do their very best to protect women, they're really protecting women from other men uh, and from themselves. And so I don't know where I'm going with on that tangent, but um, I wanted to take you before we finish with... Um, the Amazons, I do want to take you on this little rant about Xena, the warrior princess. Now, I don't know if you watched Xena, the warrior princess, um, as much as I did when I was a kid and uh, her relationship with Gabriel. Again, just like Wonder Woman, I think it's an attempt to create a, certainly a female hero in a masculine world 
that is very Amazon-like, that is very warrior-like, obviously, but that also has sort of a, a royalty um, inheritance or ancestry. And then Gabriel, who is a softer, but also quite tough warrior-ess as well. And there is some of the greatest debates. There were debates uh, when I was a kid watching the show. And now that I've seen the internet is sort of again on fire with this debate, uh, whether or not Zena and Gabriel are lovers. And so I chose to use this image of them kissing because I never had a doubt that they were lovers. And yet, once again, so the reason why I bring this up is in closing uh, is because this is a perfect example of the way that lesbianism or uh, women's intimacy, women's love, women's fluidity and sexuality is often dis portrayed and dismissed. So it is very clear these two are kissing. It is very clear that when you kiss someone, no matter what their gender identity is, that is intimacy. I mean, it's very clear that kissing is intimacy. And yet, because Zena also um, has intimacy with men, there is this continued denial of, let's say, lesbianism in the sense that she is not fully a lesbian. We cannot identify her as lesbian because look, she also is with men. And I feel like this is the exact same um, position that Greek, ancient Greek writers took about Amazons in the sense that they denied Amazonian sexuality or, or intimacy among women, or they didn't mention it because women were having sex with men, clearly for procreation or perhaps even for pleasure, who cares? And I think what's really a mystery for many men is that women can be fluid. Men can be fluid as well. And I'm not saying that. We'll talk about men. I got Poseidon lined up. We're going to talk all about them. Um, but people who identify as women are smoothly and easily fluid without apology. And I think for certainly for cis men, this is this is complicated. <laughs> this is um, confusing. Confusing might be a good word. Confusing. And there is something about their insecurity. Are they performing well? Are they not performing well? Et cetera, et cetera. There's something about their insecurity that that then they deny that the minute that a woman has is intimate with a man it's like oh yeah so she's was really never into women um she just needed a man to whatever and i think this I, I mean some of you are listening to me and you're like yeah this is as old as time uh and perhaps some of you are listening to me and going i don't know i hadn't really heard of it or thought of it but i find this really fascinating and and what i find fascinating is that this was done to the amazons three thousand years ago two thousand years ago and it's done to someone like xena the warrior princess and it's done to someone like under wonder woman where um, in the new comics, Wonder Woman has to blatantly have a girlfriend so that she is now, she's now sort of stuck in, she's put in that bisexual category. And I guess one of my goals um, with this, actually with this short series for Pride Month, but also one of my goals in life is to normalize fluidity 
to normalize the idea that we are fluid sexual beings, um, that we are fluid gendered beings. I don't know if that makes sense. That we may perform whatever gender we desire at whichever time and that we may change our minds whenever we feel like it. And that goes across the board to all genders and biologies. Um, so that's really my goal for a future, for a future uh, of humanity. Now I know this is a huge project, um, but what I hope to do is I hope to make this connection and I hope I've made this connection for you in that the ancient world and by the ancient world, I mean classical Greece and 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 Helen, uh, Hellenized uh, the, the Hellenic period um, had similar human experiences. Let's put it that way. They had hu similar human experience. We didn't use the same language, and I would venture to say that the ancients of that period were much more open to fluidity than we are today. I would say that today we are uh, much more close-minded than they were. However, for them, um, and in the context of the Amazons, for them, the fear was less about who is having intimacy or sex with who, but more about dominance and strength. And what really frightened the Greeks about the Amazons was that they were dominant, that they were tops, you know, and that they would dominate their masculinity. And, you know, that's really a great example of gender because gender is about the performance. And so, because the Greek males and heroes were performing a machismo masculinity and because the Amazons were performing what they thought was a type of masculinity, even though they were biologically female, that's what really the threat was for them. The threat was here is this person and biological woman in a woman's body but that has a masculine performance that is now coming for my masculinity and threatening my performance. Um, I hope that makes sense to you guys. But And so I think that rather than who the Amazons had sex with, although, like I said, there's these mysteries and there's these sort of innuendos that, of course, they had sex with each other. But, but rather than that being a fear for the ancients, the fear was this dominant and submissive position. The fear was that these Amazonian women were performing masculinity better than the biological males were performing masculinity. And so that was the, um, that was the true fear. And that is the true fear. And I think that continues to be the true fear um, of cis men, certainly of cis men, um, that women or biological women, you know, who identify or perform um, womenness are taking over, um, you know, what they identify as masculine spaces and uh, masculine performances and all these kinds of things. And so I also think that this is why 
cis men find butch lesbians threatening or they say that they're totally unattractive or what a dude but really look you know enjoy um femme lesbians of course because femme lesbians perform the appropriate uh gender performance for men they don't care that you're making out with another woman and this is actually why Zena, the warrior princess is which is you know she's performing femme lesbianism they both are because the audience for this show was often male much more than female although now that now we're finding out that actually a lot of young girls watch Zena, the warrior princess and was you know she was our hero for for many of us um and so yeah so that was that was a rant sorry guys but i hope that that makes sense because i think that that's really the key to the the fear and the backlash of why so many cis men and so many people are afraid 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 of um of queer women uh, of trans women of all the 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 performances of uh women that don't fit in the performances that that they think women should be performing and so and i so i think that that's a real issue i mean i think i know that that's a real issue we all know and it's time that we all speak up about it um in all communities and my goal as a historian is to bring you some history and hopefully a little bit of fun but also i, I by bringing you history mythology stories from the ancient world and trying my very best to explain the normalcy of gender fluidity in the ancient world. That's my goal for this month is to really go through each of the gods of the Olympians as much as I can and show you their very gender fluid relationship and their very gay relationships and many, many, what we would define as gay today in the modern world in many of the cases. I'm hoping that people will learn that it's not just, oh, why are all these gay people coming out now? It's not just that. Uh, that 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 it has always been, people's fluidity has always been the norm. In fact, fluidity is the norm. <laughs> Let me just say that in closing. Fluidity, sexual gender fluidity is the norm. The abnorm, the not norm is heteronormativity. I hate to say it. And I'll even lean towards monogamy don't kill me. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Next episode, we'll do Poseidon and we'll look at Poseidon and his lover, um, Pelops. And so if you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button right there um, and join me on my adventures and in my regular episodes on the Goddess Project. And please remember that while this is fun for Pride Month, Pride is every day. Fridays every day. Thank you for joining me and I'll see you all next time.